Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning, um, title of the message is a bit provocative. Um, if we can flash the, it's called Getting Naked. I really wrestled with appropriate imagery for these slides. Um, almost got stumbled trying to put the slides together. And so I, in the end, went against my instincts for shock value and decided to be a normal person. Um, but the subtitle is really what it's about, because this is part of our series on true community. And the subtitle is From Closure to Disclosure. Uh, do you guys ever have somebody say to you, look, I can't read your mind? Or on the flip side, have you ever had somebody that it's like, they're constantly a riddle wrapped inside of an enigma, wrapped inside of a really annoying vault. And you're like, what is your problem? How can I get to know someone who never says anything? And so you can see that when there isn't disclosure, community relationships are really hard to build, aren't they? Well, most normal people I've discovered don't like being naked in front of other people. Public nudity is a bit of a an uncomfortable thing for most of us. That's why I'm, it's always awkward when I'm in a locker room and there's that one guy, there's always that one guy who's naked as a jaybird, no towels, just into brushing his teeth. And I'm like, dude, please put on a towel. I'm not trying to see the, all of that here. And it's weird to me that that person doesn't have the natural instinct to cover. Because for most of us, it is a basic human instinct to cover ourselves when we're exposed. That instinct is almost as old as humanity itself. And I say almost as old because it wasn't always that way. In Genesis 2.25, um, God reveals to us that the very first couple, the first two people that occupy the earth, Adam and Eve, says that they were both naked and neither of them felt any shame. So what the Bible says is that in the beginning when the human race was put on the earth, there was nothing to cover our exposure, our nakedness. Everything that we had and were was out there for everyone to see, and that didn't threaten us in any way. There was no instinct to cover that up. But it wasn't very long before something happened, and that freedom to just be... Have any of you ever had an opportunity to be undressed out in like the, the countryside or the woods or anything? Yeah, I don't want to know the whole story. That, that's a little disturbing. But if you've ever had an opportunity, even maybe as, as a fella, to be camping and just pee out in the woods, there's something very wonderful about that experience. That feeling of like, this is how we were meant to live. It's too bad. It's socially inappropriate, right? And that's what Adam and Eve experienced. This freedom of just having no encumbrances, no coverings, nothing itchy, scratching against your skin, just out there. In the jungle, free. But soon, they forfeited that freedom. And here's what happened. They went from being open and exposed and vulnerable and okay with that to closing up into a shell, to covering. And here's how it happened. It says that, um, that there was freedom to do whatever they wanted in the garden, to eat from whatever wonderful fruit was all over the place, it was like a produce department at Valley with no rotten fruit. Everything was wonderful, ripe, clean, except for this one tree. 
There was one tree that God said, this is the one thing I'm going to prohibit you from touching because it's not good for you to eat this. And as will often be the case, it's the one thing that is forbidden, which becomes an obsession for us. You are free to do whatever you want except this one thing. And for human nature, we might also say that's the one thing you really want to do. If you have children, you know exactly, don't look in there. Your Christmas gifts are in there. Why even say it? Basically giving your kids instructions how to cheat because human nature is like that. You deny us one thing, and that's the one thing we must have. And so after a while, the temptation was too great, and they both, uh, people make too much of a big deal out of the fact that Eve took it first and then gave it to her husband. It doesn't matter. They both screwed up. They both couldn't resist that fruit, and they ate it. And here's what happened immediately after the juice dribbled down their chins. It says that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In other words, the first consequence of sin entering the human experience was an immediate feeling of shame. What's interesting is they were always naked. That didn't change. What changed was the way they felt about it. It says they realized they were naked. They realized. Just like when you sometimes realize, oh, my fly is open. It's been open. How long? I don't know. But you look at him. Oh, what hasn't changed is the situation. What's changed is the way I feel about that situation. And so right away, this freedom, this total exposure and the comfort and security of it disappeared. And now out of this perfect community, this family that had no barriers between them, all of a sudden, here's the situation you have, is that now they feel this instinctive need to cover up and to put a barrier between themselves and one another. I think this whole drama plays itself out in every human life. Well, Almost every human life. Sometimes the process gets broken. But you know, as young kids, we don't know how to feel shame, do we? I mean, I've got four kids, and one of my kids in particular just loves being naked. Has always loved being naked. And so, uh, when this child was young, it was clothing optional in our house, apparently, because there was just... And watch a young child. They will be naked as jaybird, running around, and they don't feel a bit self-conscious, do they? And it's cute when they're like two or three. It's not so cute when they're 14 or 15. You're like, please. So you're worried that it might become something permanent. So it is at a certain point in their lives that we begin teaching children, training them, oh, no, 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 no. You should be ashamed of your exposure. You should be ashamed of that. And there are words in many languages to to describe that sense of shame, which we're inculcating into our kids because we don't want them to be streakers. So what's funny is you watch in a child's mind, they don't know to be ashamed, but at some point, it's understanding the rules of society. They go, oh, oh, this is not okay. I should be embarrassed about this. And they learn to cover themselves. Now, at a physical level with clothing, that is the truth. That in most normal life paths, that's the, the story that plays out, is you're not embarrassed, you're not ashamed, but all of a sudden, You're trained to feel that way. But I think it runs deeper than that. I don't think shame is just about physical nakedness. I think the same thing happens in our hearts, doesn't it? When we're young, we believe everybody loves us and we're great and there's nothing wrong with us. 
when you draw a picture as a kid, that picture could stink. I mean, and most do. Little kids are terrible at drawing. Okay? They just are. But they are so proud of everything they draw, they think everything is worthy of hanging on the door of your office hutch. As long as I take it and go, if it weren't my kid, I'd throw it out right now. The only value of this picture is my kid did it. But as a piece of art, it's terrible. But as a child, you don't know that. Because whatever you make, you think is great. You don't realize that there are people in this world who don't like you. You don't realize that sometimes you annoy the living daylights out of people or that maybe other people have needs and your needs don't come first. Watch a child. They don't know about this. But after a while, everyone begins to teach them, you should be ashamed of yourself. Why do you act like that? And part of it is right. Part of it is we should be taught you're not the center of the universe, right? And that you shouldn't call something bad good if you could do better. Like that's, It's good to give kids ambitions, goals. But I think something else happens along the way. We start to feel what we call the, some have observed it as the inner blush. This feeling deep down inside that there's something not right about us. That while I once was really good and okay with myself, over time, what I accrue, what I collect, is this growing conviction that maybe I'm not so okay. Maybe I'm not as lovable as I once imagined myself to be, or as popular, or as important, or as complete. Now, some of our shame, that's what we call shame, right? Shame is this growing conviction that there's something not right or complete about me, and if everyone could see who I really am, they would reject me. Where does that shame come from? I think part of it comes from our own voice inside because we can't lie to ourselves, can we? Well, you can, but sometimes it just comes out, doesn't it? And you know that there are failings in your own life that cause you to really regret who you are and what you've done. Things you can't take back, redo. It's done. It's written in stone. That's the past. It doesn't change. And there it is. That's the story of you. Look what you did. And for some of us, knowing those things... And I'm not talking about little things. I'm talking about the big stuff. The really big stuff that marks you. It leaves a big scar on the cheek of your soul. And you're you're just convinced everyone who talks to you for five minutes will know this is the scarlet letter hung on your chest. You. And if people knew what you did, they would be sickened by you. They couldn't be friends with you. Oh, you look so great on the outside, but now I see who you really are. And we're convinced of this, aren't we? Maybe it's because we grew up comparing ourselves to everyone else. Maybe, in fact, our families trained us to do that. Some of us grew up in families that incessantly compared us to everyone else. And the the truth is, we ended up always coming up short. I I hate to point out ethnicities, but especially if you're Asian, this is going to be part of your life experience, is... Asian parenting strategy is often withhold approval, otherwise the kid will stop trying. The minute you say, hey, you're pretty good, you're convinced your kid's going to stop trying, so you never tell them you're pretty good, you just go, you're not terrible. Right? Oh, A minus, that isn't bad. But Jimmy down the street got an A plus. So maybe you grew up 
constantly being trained to compare yourself with others, and because you keep falling short, you're committing yourself to make up for that gap. Maybe it's choices you made in the past, but sometimes that shame comes from your own voice. You condemn yourself. Some of it, though, comes from the unmerciful treatment of others towards you. Many of you grew up hearing overtly the words, you're not good enough. Why can't you be like them? Why are you always like this? What's wrong with you? Maybe there was a very, very defining experience, or maybe it was a gradual pattern in your life that you were rejected by a group and made to feel abnormal, an outsider, like you never belonged, and maybe that marked you. Sociologists observed that, that the fourth grade is the most important time of most people's lives. I think I've shared that with you before. And it's often things that happen leading up to and right around fourth grade that mark people. It, it's the baggage you carry all through your life is that junk that happens at that pivotal point in your life where you're losing your innocence and realizing the world isn't such a nice place. And the, the thoughts you had, the assumptions you made as a kid are no longer valid. And so there are people who rejected you, who told you you get an F in life, who made you feel abnormal, different, unworthy, incomplete. You're always the wrong body size or shape or ethnicity. A lot of people grew up as the one minority in a a town that was all another ethnicity, grew up feeling that way, like jealousy, envy. Why can't I be like the rest of them? We're trained often by our life experiences to have this growing sense of unworthiness or inadequacy, and many of us are still working out those issues today as adults, aren't we? You could be 50 or 60, and you still see yourself as the unathletic geek loser who everybody else would give a wedgie to if they ever got a chance. 50, 60, you could be a You could be a a leading figure in your company, an accomplished artist, whatever, but in your mind, you have to do that because that's who you'll always be. That's what people told you you were. Professor and author Lou Smeads makes this observation. He says the difference between guilt and shame is something like this. We feel guilty because we've done something wrong, but we feel shame Because we are something wrong. That's really what it was that drove Adam and Eve to instinctively cover up. They also hid from God. The hiding from God was really more about guilt. We know we did something wrong. But the instinct to cover up from each other, well, that was about shame. I know what I'm capable of. Think about it this way, okay? The devil, the serpent, when he tempted them, said, if you eat this, you will have the knowledge of good and evil. What kind of sales pitch is that? Because they already had the knowledge of good. All he was selling was the knowledge of evil. And that's what happened, was they had everything good, and all they added was knowledge of all that is bad. And so at that moment, they suddenly felt like, I am not right. I am not good. I am not good enough. And in that moment of realization, the instinct was to cover. If you were standing on the stage with me and your clothes disappeared, would anyone need to train you where your hands go first? How many of you would be like, oh my Lord, I've got to cover my belly button and my 
my ears. You, you don't do that. There are private parts you cover first, right? No one goes, oh. Right? It's because it's instinct to feel you've got to protect that part that makes you feel most exposed. So look what they did. Their next reaction was they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's remarkable about that detail is in the entire creation story, this is the first act of humanity where they are not being provided for by God, but they are making something for themselves. Okay? This is the first time we see human beings not waiting for God to provide, but they take matters into their own hands because they suddenly feel the nakedness and they say, I'm not going to put up with this. I've got to do something about the way I'm feeling. So they take fig leaves. And that's why I put those leaves there. That's an actual fig leaf. And they sewed several of them together and they made makeshift garments. Later on, in order to make a more permanent covering, they killed some of their fellow garden citizens, they're animals, and they ripped their skin off of them and covered their own nakedness with the skin of a dead animal. But at this moment, the initial means was to take fig leaves and cover them. That's why we, in our culture, in our vernacular, we use the term fig leaves to symbolize anything we have that covers over things we're ashamed of, things that mask or distract others' attentions from things we don't want them to see. For some people, for example, a very loud, awesome, custom motorcycle is a fig leaf. A Corvette is a fig leaf. You get, you get the picture, right? So they took matters into their own hands. What happened was sin led to shame, which led to closure. Do you get that process? I'm ashamed of myself. I don't think I'm good enough. And so I want to cover those parts which I don't want others to see. Because if they see it, they will reject me. I think, and I was, uh, I, it, it was a, a colleague of mine, a friend, Pastor Paul Kim at Pacific Crossroads Church, who really helped me unpack some of this a little bit. I've used my own terminology, but the concepts really come from him. Um, he describes three forms of closure, ways that we cover our shame. Three common ways people do this. Let me just run through them quickly with you. One of them is compensation. We've got a lot of stuff we're not proud of. And so one strategy for covering is if I, I know I smell really bad, but if I spray a lot of Axe on myself, maybe the smell of poop smeared all over my body will not be so discernible to others. I can't wash it off. And so I just try to mask it. And so that's what some people do. They compensate for their shame by trying to accrue. They compete with others. They religiously pursue excellence, achievement, Because what they're trying to say is, I can't make the stank go away, so let me make the perfume stronger. And that's why some people are so bent on physical beauty, fitness, financial success, career advancement. It's not even about the inherent satisfaction they draw from those experiences. It's about how it makes others stop looking at their flaws. If I stood before you, Perfect, and they're there. I just hide it under my shirt, you know, but perfect shredded six-pack abs and a perfectly built body. You know, guys like that usually wear tight T-shirts, don't they? Let's just out them right now. Nobody built like me wears tight T-shirts. It's those guys. Why? Because they want to put it on display. Because if they show that, it sort of distracts you from all the other flaws they might be hiding. Look in my body and stop asking questions about my heart. Isn't that just weird? 
That's why when a girl wants to present a young man to her parents, she begins with his resume. Oh, he's vice president of this company. He's got a really nice car. But what's he like? But mom, there's, he's so rich. He's so good looking. Yeah, but what's he like? Do you see what we do? Compensation. Maybe it's a quest for profession. Maybe for some people, it's serving with obsessive diligence in ministry. I always get a little nervous when somebody goes from doing nothing to all of a sudden trying to be involved in every church activity. And I'm like, what sin are you trying to scrub away, man? What's going on? I don't want to be cynical, but I've been in ministry long enough to know when somebody goes from lethargy to all of a sudden, I'm going to be every meeting in the church. You're like, what did you do? Come on, what'd you do? And it isn't long before they go, all right, here it is. And you realize this is human nature. One strategy for for covering is to compensate for the bad smell with a good smell. Here's another strategy we often have in trying to cover or have closure is insulation. We put a force field around us like that girl in The Incredibles, right? And no one can get close. One of the ways we do that is preemptive rejection. We are hypercritical. We reject others like, whatever, they think they're so great. And we reject them before they have a chance to reject us. You can't fire me because I quit. You know that attitude? You can't judge me because I already judged you. You don't matter. You all stink. You meet people like that who can't let anyone close. They're hypercritical. It's not because those other people are all so bad. But if you reject them first, their rejection of you stings less, doesn't it? For others, this insulation comes in the form of keeping everything light and superficial. You're always joking. You always got a, a clever one-liner. You never get serious. Every serious, especially in like a, a seminar where everyone's like, look at each other. And you're like, hey, 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 and you're, you're laughing because the minute you get serious, sudden, suddenly it's like, oh, I feel naked. I don't like that. And so we, our force field is what we think is a sense of humor, but it's really self-defense. We never, ever let anyone close enough. Sometimes it's just pretending people don't matter. You know, I know people with such pride. They say, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. First of all, that's not true. <laughs> I have never met anyone who honestly doesn't care what people think about them. The only reason they're saying this is because they care so much what people thought about them that they got wounded and now they want to believe themselves. But everybody cares what other people think about them because God shaped us for community. You can't form community if you don't care about people. We all innately care about people. We're just too wounded sometimes to realize it. And here's a third strategy or form of closure or of uh, hiding our shame is we just flat out deny there's any problem. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. There's nothing wrong with me. If you get to know me, you'll pretty much like most of me. In fact, go ahead and ask me anything. I'm an open book. There's nothing I'm hiding. We're all hiding something. We all are. Maybe part of that is because you grew up in a family that taught you that we keep secrets. Don't you ever tell people out there about this. And if you grew up in a family like that, oh, daddy lost his job. But shh, don't, don't ever tell anybody that daddy lost his job. Shh. We're going to keep buying stuff. We're going to keep acting normal because our family never lets anybody see the cracks in the armor. We are a perfect family. Nobody will ever be the wiser. Shame drives us to closure, to shielding, hiding, disguising. 
And we all do it. It's just part of the human experience. If you don't believe you do this, you've got to take a longer look at your own heart. We're all doing it. That's what shame does to us. And you can see the obvious effect that this dynamic would have on any attempt to build family or community. Do you see that? When people are overcompensating or when they're insulating themselves or in flat-out denial and they're covering their shame, how do you build community in a setting like that? So closure really destroys community. It works against it. And that's why if we're going to build true community, there has to be in our lives, individually and then collectively, a movement away from closure towards disclosure. And so that's the second of, second of the two points of this message, is we want to describe what disclosure looks like. And I've already seen a number of you elbowing the person sitting next to you because you believe that that person is one of those locked up in a vault, force field people. But I want you to know something. It might just be possible that you're also responsible for that. <laughs> you're the one who trained them to hide because when they really let it out, they get punished for it or they have to go through a very long and uncomfortable and unpleasant day. And so why would you ever disclose to that person? So before we do too much elbow jabbing, let's keep in mind in community, we have an effect on each other. And so in hearing this message, I'm asking you, hear it for your own heart first. Hear it for your own heart. Own your own contribution to what's happening in community around you. Now, the point is, if we're going to build community, we've got to move from closure to disclosure. Another way of saying that is we've got to learn to get naked again. To feel okay about being exposed for who we really are, not being afraid of it. Last March, I preached a message from John chapter 4, and that's the famous story of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well in a town called Sychar. Do you remember that story? And some of you who were around in March, I think March 6th, 2011, I preached this message, and one of the points I made, I highlighted, let, let me just give you a quick recap of that story. So this woman is at the well in her town at noon, which is the height of the noonday sun in a desert community. Nobody does any physical work at that hour, and that's precisely why this woman was at the well at 12, because she would be alone. It was important to this woman to avoid others because every time she encountered others, there was scorn and judgment and eyes rolling and tongues clucking. It wasn't comfortable for her to live in community because she wasn't one of the stellar members of that town. She was the shady lady of Sychar. She was the woman with a past. Some of us have felt just like her, haven't we? We feel like there is this tattoo on our forehead naming the sin of our past. And so we're obsessively drawn to clean people, hoping that our association with them would cause us to forget who we were. This woman chose the strategy of avoiding. And so she endured the heat to gather water at noon. And so she was surprised to find another person at the well. She was even more surprised to find that this is not a Samaritan, but a Jew and a man to boot. And you know how sometimes when you don't want to see somebody and there's somebody there, you, you, you have this very aggressive avoidance. You're like, I'm not even going to look. Well, how horrifying then when that person sees you and walks right up to you like, no, no, don't come here. Don't, come, don't talk to me. Don't engage me. I just want to get my water and run back home. But the man comes up to her and he's kind. And he says, look, could you give me a, a drink of water? I'm thirsty. First of all, you've got to understand in her culture, this is a really 
inappropriate encounter. It would be like in my, in, in our era, if I walked up to a young woman and said, hey, um, can we just lay on the grass arm in arm and just talk for a little while? Can we just cuddle a little? I mean, that's how scandalous this is. If I said that to one of you ladies, you'd be like, oh, sick, gross, no way. What you would, wouldn't you? I sure hope you would. <laughs> ah, because that's so inappropriate. Well, this is the scandal of this encounter, right? And then he starts saying, you know what? If you give me a drink of water, let me give you a gift in return. There is water I have to offer you such that if you drink it, you will never be thirsty again. And I really think this woman wasn't foolish enough to believe it was actual magic water. I think she understood he's talking about the thirst not in her throat, but in her soul. A deep thirst. A really deep thirst. And he said, I've got water to offer you such that if you drink it, you will finally feel okay about who you are. And so this woman says to him, Sir, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay? Now, listen. This is straight out of the Evangelism 101 textbook. This is an evangelistic grand slam. He turns this organic life situation around, and now he's like, oh, you know, thanks for this water. I got water for you. And she's like, oh, let me have it. Let me have it. And it's like, if you were in this situation, you'd be like, oh, man, this is too easy evangelism super easy. And he would just say, okay, let me tell you how, kneel with me, let's just say this prayer and you will be born again. But Jesus did something very weird at this point, didn't he? Look what he says to her. Hey, go and get your husband, Jesus told her, knowing full well she didn't have a husband. But he says it at that moment of all times. And what I said back in March was, this is an example of Jesus sticking his finger into the wound. It's pretty graphic imagery, isn't it? You got this open, bleeding wound, pus coming out, and it's tender, and Jesus sticks his finger right in the heart of that wound and just twists a little. Why would you do that? It's so mean. If you're running an evangelism seminar, you're like, Jesus, you get an F. What is that? Let's talk about your approach here. You don't do that maybe a year later, but not now. You've got it right there. Come on, swing the bat, dude. Why does Jesus do it? And look what he says to her afterward. Well, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. You got to understand, even in our culture, that's a little shady. But back then, it was like, what is wrong with this chick? Five husbands, and this is the worst. You aren't even married to the man you are living with now. Today, you say that, everyone's like, yeah, so what? Me and 80 million other Americans. Shut up. Back then, the scandal of it made your skin crawl. He is exposing her shame at the very moment when she's asking for the gift of living water. Now, one of the things I, the points I made back in March was he did that to prove to her that her way of coping with the shame wasn't working. She sought the love, the affirmation of one man after another, but these men could not make her feel whole about herself. So he needed to point out, your solutions aren't working. Let me offer you a solution that will actually hit that thirst deep down inside. Some of you 
are being trained and have been trained to think that success is the only way to be worthy. You've got to make a lot of money, get a great job, go to a good school, get good grades, and some of you will discover you'll do all of that and you'll still feel thirsty. You'll be loaded, (laughs) but you'll still be thirsty. And you know exactly that that's true. So you keep chasing more because that's all you've ever learned. But Pastor Paul also helped me to see another thing out of this passage. See, this woman is shocked at that moment because most people don't know your personal story when they're strangers. That's not a good guess. That's freaky when someone goes, I know you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five. She's like, who are you? And immediately she feels exposed. She is ashamed. She's covering because how could you possibly know this much about me? But then the shame instantly turns into something else. It turns into wonder. Because what she realizes is this. He knew all this time who I am. Every other person in town who knows me judges me. But this whole time, he knew the worst about me, and yet the whole time, he's been kind to me. He engaged me. He initiated a conversation. Knowing what it would do to his reputation to be even seen with me, he approached me and talked. And the kindness of that brought healing to this broken woman. Because what she discovered that that day at the well was the heart of what we call the gospel. And that is that God knows the worst about us. And yet love is still given. He knows the worst. We're constantly trying to pretend it's not there. Hide it. But how do you hide from someone with x-ray vision? Clothing doesn't work with Superman. He's like, oh, nice try. I see you. It's the same way I feel... At the airport, when I'm doing this, good Lord, this is so invasive. It's so degrading. How do you hide from someone who can see everything? And yet, inexplicably, we still try, don't we? We still try to throw God off the scent. But at that moment, this woman was set free. Why? Because she realized he saw how bad she stank. And he didn't go running for the hills. He stayed. He was kind. He accepted her. This is the beginning of the death of shame. It's the only way a person will ever be okay letting you see who they are. You will never achieve this level of human honesty and vulnerability and disclosure unless that encounter with Jesus happens first. For some of you, you need to remember these words more than anything else I say this morning. Until you have that encounter with Jesus where you're convinced he has seen the worst of you and still loves you, you will spend your whole life like this public comical display of insecurity. Everyone else sees how badly you are trying to compensate for the fact that you don't like yourself very much. I know you don't acknowledge those dynamics in your brain right now. You know, I like myself just fine. Mind your own business. But I'm telling you, until you have this identity solidified through the acceptance of Christ, your whole life will be about trying to become something, to shape an image, to mask over and cover the shame of exposure. Because you're convinced that if I, could, if I was the real me, people would reject me. Do you want to know something interesting? For years, I took the Myers-Briggs test. 
I even took the, the long form, the expensive Q, I think it's, it's called. And for about 10 years, every single time, I came out as ENTJ. ENTJ is the profile of the CEO, the go-getter, the champion, the general, the leader. And as an Asian male, I especially felt this keen, I need to be a thinker. Feelers are weak, girly men. They're panty waist. Man who's a feeler, what is that? And I couldn't accept that. Maybe, but the thing was, I was conflicted because I kind of have feelings. <laughs> but for years, I, was, I realized I couldn't even take the test right. I was trying to game the test, and I gamed it successfully. E-N-T-J, every time. But then something interesting happened. I entered something called the Aero Leadership Program. And that was less of a training program. It was more about a deconstruction, a ripping off of the clothes, and then being presented to Jesus. It was a very uncomfortable experience for me, but one of the most enriching things I've ever done. And after Arrow was done, I took the test four more times. Do you know what happened? <laughs> I became an F, a feeler. Like, what is this? That, has this stuff changed? No, it didn't change me. It finally gave me permission to be okay with who I am. I'm okay telling you that in my marriage, I'm the one who brings home the romantic comedies. And my wife goes, Ugh, is there any like gunfighting in this? And I'm like, no, Gerard Butler is like a, he's like a, a lover in this one. He's not a fighter. And it's me getting emotional while I look over and she's like, as a man, it was risky to tell you that. Because I don't know how I mean, some of you ladies are like, oh, I wish my husband was like. But some of you guys are like, girly man. <laughs> Up there preaching little girly man. I know that's what you're thinking. How is it possible that I could stand on stage and say this out loud to you and then put it on the internet for the whole world to hear? <laughs> How? The only way is that at some point, You've got to meet someone who sees the whole you and says, okay, I see you. I'm not throwing up. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but I actually see you and I don't reject you. And at that moment, that profound moment, something clicks in me where I say, okay, finally, one person who really saw me the way I see me and is okay with me. And something profound happens in the human heart. And that takes place. So Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans that the love of God is demonstrated in this, that while we still stank of our sin, his own son died for us. There's no denial of the fact that we were still sinners when he crossed that bridge. And so it is in the acceptance of God for the sake of his son Jesus not because we did anything good to compensate, but because his son stood in front of us and said, Dad, when you look at this one, look at me instead. I cover their shame. Because if you really took a long look at them, Dad, you'd puke just like I would. <laughs> you, you, couldn't stand, you couldn't handle it. Please stop looking at them. Look over at me instead. That's the gospel. It's the only reason I can tell you that I'm a girly man. Because Jesus... Loves this girly man. And I don't mind telling you that I like those kinds of movies. <laughs> See, here's why that matters. 
Because if you don't achieve that security, you'll never, ever be able to get naked again. And everything others will see of you will be a facade, an illusion. You can't build community at a masquerade ball, can you? When you have a delightful conversation, you're like, who was that again? I don't even know. That's what some churches are trying to do, aren't they? We'll all wear our masks. You'll only see what I decide to show you, and then we'll become a family. No, we won't. We'll never become a family until the masks come down. Until at some point somebody heals you and stands in and covers your shame so that you can finally get naked again and be okay. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? It doesn't mean you say, I give up on ever changing or growing or doing any better. Some people own their junk, and they like it. <laughs> That's not the point. You're not supposed to love your junk, but you can own it. It's, it's what James meant when he said in, in James 5.16, the first part of that verse, confess your sins to each other. And then pray for each other so that you may be healed. In part, what he meant to say there was this. Drop the act. Stop pretending that sin is not a part of your story. Stop acting like you have to shield your imperfections to come to church. Because if you do that, then the culture that will develop in this place is, oh, we're all put together perfect people. And the real people, the honest ones who are walking in broken and ashamed, don't ever feel like they could show up here and be real. And what's amazing is I've had people tell me, um, you know, Pastor Dave, I feel like you understand me, but at this church I feel so out of place because everyone else is so perfect. What are you talking about, Willis? I pastor a perfect, which perfect people? And they start naming all the perfect people. But the thing is, as a pastor, you know, you know, pastor, client, privilege, or whatever you want to call it, I get to pull up the rug and see the bugs underneath, don't I? Here's my conclusion of my own family and yours. We're all dirty. We all smell of poop. We all have bugs. There's not a perfect family or a person I have met in this church, not even when I look in the mirror. Do you have the freedom to look at people and say, I'm somebody who can't handle my life. I see all of you, you're handling it just fine. You have two jobs, 18 kids, six mortgages, and you're always smiling. I have one thing, and I can't even carry that well. I'm ashamed of myself. Can you handle being that real in this place? You can if you will meet a few others who will also admit, I don't have everything so perfectly put together. So James says, and I believe God says, drop the act. Stop building a fake culture of put-together people. Be willing to admit that I am this weak, this foul, this broken, and God still loved me and accepted me, and now in that safe place, he's changing me. God's doing it for us, but we can also do it for each other if we will drop our guards. He's basically saying, just stop pretending you're further along than you really are. 
I've met pastors who I've watched when I'm at their retreats as a speaker and we're having a men's gathering and we talk about pornography addiction. And these guys are pouring out their hearts. And I see these pastors sitting on the chair going, guys, I know you're struggling with this. Um, I can't fully identify with you because as a pastor, I don't always feel those feelings. But in theory, intellectually, I understand what lust might be like. I'm like, oh, shut up. You liar. Unless you're a eunuch, you know exactly what they're feeling. But what will it do to them if you act like you don't even, your guys are aliens, but I read books about it and I think I get you. Come on, man. Drop the act. Drop it. It's not relevant. It's not needed. Because in this place, the only real acceptance that matters first and most is that God accepted us for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. And every church that's honest is a church full of smelly, messed up people working their way through life by the grace of God. If we can get there, we can actually build a community here. Now, I could just tell you, drop your masks. But that would be like me telling you, drop your pants, everyone. And just show it. And I, who would, a couple of you sick people might try, but most of us would be like, uh-uh. Why can't we? Why can't we? Because I don't feel safe yet. I've got, something's got to happen first, and then maybe. I have poke all your eyes out with pencils, and then I'll drop my pants in front of you. So I can't just tell you, drop the masks. That's a naive kind of sermon. Something has to happen first before we start showing our true colors. And that first thing that's got to happen is that you've got to realize God knows your real story. He knows what you smell like. He's not okay with it in the sense that he loves you too much to leave you the way he finds you. But he will accept you just as he finds you. He'll take you as you are. And if you can find at least one person who can do that for you, then maybe there's hope others can too. Jesus saw what's hiding behind your fig leaves. And can I tell you that fig leaves aren't that convincing of a disguise. Most of us can guess what's behind your fig leaves too. And I know you can see what's behind mine. I go out of my way to talk about how I love muscle cars and I hate Bobby's Prius. And I'm aware, even as I'm saying it, first of all, that he's a girly man for driving that car, but also that I've got some issues. Why do I need so badly to be associated with Detroit muscle and don't want anything to do with his little girly car. Why? We'll never be fully free of that, but it's a journey of being able to start saying, this is me. And in this place, I'd like to just be able to lay down the costume and let everyone see who I am. Wouldn't it be wonderful to find a place in your life where you could do that? I hope that this church will become that place. I hope also that if you're married or if you plan to be married, your marriage and your family will be exactly that place. Because Paul later in the New Testament repeated the words of Genesis 2.24. You will leave your mother and your father and be joined together and become one flesh. The very next verse also applies. We will have everything exposed and not feel ashamed in marriage. That's the picture. The marriage is meant to be a picture of that security that heals. I hope your home life will become like that as well.
Maybe part of the reason you can't accept the person you're with is not because of who they are, but because how they reflect on you, how they make other people think about you. Well, then you're also destroying that community, aren't you? So I want to invite you, as we wrap up this message, this service, not to just be thinking about how to pull a mask down, but why there's such a drive to cover. And if you can accept the fact that Jesus is willing to stand in and cover you. And for some in this room, I think that needs to happen today for the first time in your life. It's a big thing. There's so much more that could be said. I'm not going to say anything else. I think this is a good place for me to stop. And I want to invite you to just get quiet and still for a few more minutes. And let's think about this. The way it is with most sermons is the one you swear is for everyone else and not for you. That's the one that's actually for you. Because there is this betrayer in your soul that constantly tries to deflect everything God's trying to do. That's for someone else, not for me. Listen to me. Your whole life, until you meet Jesus and he heals you of your shame, your whole life is an exercise of comparing and covering. That's life. And it's only when you meet Jesus you can finally say, Phew, I don't have to carry this junk anymore. I can let it go. Here I am. This is me. Let's go together. So let's just be quiet for a while and reflect on this wonderful offer of Jesus. I will cover you. And then you can be okay showing people who you are. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.